I do. Uh, I brought a copy of the book for Graham Faircloth, and I don't think he's here. So I'm going to keep it and give it to someone else. It's his fault. Uh, but yeah, the book just came out a few days ago in the U.S. Uh, you can get it on American Kindle. Um, and people who know how to do cyber stuff can figure out how to get it in this country through the American version of Kindle. It should be out soon enough, but I never understand the relationship between Oxford U.S. and Oxford U.K. in terms of OUP, so I don't know how that works. But they're not the same entity as probably a lot of you know. And, I mean, I think one thing mentioned is that I've, I have a lot of publications. The thing is, like, it doesn't really matter. I did a lot of research early on in my career on conflict processes, a lot of data work, a lot of stuff I don't really want to necessarily revisit. Uh, I did a whole book on Tibetan movies for some reason. I don't know how that happened. It just did. It's a long story. Um, but I think what's interesting is that I feel a lot better about my stage of my career right now because I found something that I think is interesting and important. And that for me is cybersecurity because there's a lot of bluster, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of assurance that we know something about this domain, quote unquote, without any evidence. And to me, that's a huge problem. That's not what we do in politics. That's not what we do in research. We don't say things based on the imagination of what could happen. We say things based on what we know has happened and will happen based on evidence. And that's what's really structured my work and structured what I've been doing now. Which I do with Benjamin Jensen and Ryan Manis. Uh, all heirs are theirs. I throw the co-authors under the bus, really. Uh, and that, of course, is the new cover of the book. Um, but the purpose of this next book, the second book I've done on cybersecurity, is really to understand just how useful are cyber strategies. No one has really dived into that question. No one's really asked the question of what good are they? We assume there's a utility for cyber weaponry. We assume there's a usefulness. We assume we can use them against ISIS. We assume that Russia was able to leverage these technologies against America during the 2016 election. And while we have presence of these weapons during these cases, we have no real analysis of their utility. Did they really work? The ISIS story is hilarious to me. One of my favorite articles, um, I think it was written by David Sanger, was talking about America targeting ISIS. And one of the things they said is the first thing the Americans did is take out the power prices. Then they supposedly hack ISIS. And my question at that point is, how do you hack someone without power? How does that work? You know, how do you leverage high technology tools against low technology adversaries? And this is a challenge that we have in America right now because we assume future warfare will be high tech, when the reality is our adversaries for the last 30 or 40 years have been very, very low tech. So now we've moved towards using high technology weapons against unsuitable opponents. And this is because of the politics of defense acquisitions, the sort of hype. Um, I have a line in the book, new toys and bring new joys. I kind of get the idea that a lot of people in the military think cyber tools are like Christmas Day. You just unwrap your new toys and you want to play with them. But then you find out they don't really work against the targets you're trying to use them against. And, uh, you know, one of the funny issues here is um, in America, the DOD literally asked for loud cyber bombs because they felt that 
The cyber weapons we were using against adversaries, adversaries didn't know they were being used. They were being targeted. And for them, that was a problem. They wanted an effect. The thing, though, that we contend and we argue throughout this book is that cyber is not necessarily a new tool. It's a new method. That this is really a tool of political warfare. This is something that George Keenan talked about in the 40s. It's something we've been doing since the beginning of time, and that is covert operations, espionage. Now, this is where cybersecurity really falls. Yet we put it towards the domain of warfare and violence. And I spoke in front of uh, the Senate in the U.S., and they kept asking me, well, where is the red line? And I didn't really understand that question because, to me, the red line is death. And until we have death, I don't know how we're really going to get there towards this idea of massive cyber war. It's not really a thing as far as I'm concerned. I think the bucket that we place cybersecurity in is utterly, utterly wrong, and we need to rethink the concept. So cyber-enabled tools will not replace traditional elements of statecraft. Uh, they won't be new tools of leverage. The other thing is that these methods thought to be cheap, easy, and fast are no substitute for traditional strategy. If something is cheap, easy, and fast, it probably isn't very useful. It probably is what it says in the definition, cheap. It'll go away quickly. The effects will not linger. And that's a challenge. You know, people ask me about Estonia. Weren't the effects there? Wasn't that a devastating attack in 2007? I mean, Estonians will certainly argue that, as they do with me in person. But then you get them in private, and they make jokes about how they use that attack to get NATO to spend more money on the country. So the reality is much different. They are the ones who turned off their internet. They, were, of course, were hacked by Russia. They, of course, were targeted. But their solution was to turn things off and let it basically blow over. The story in reality is much different than the story we tell ourselves. Because we want these new sensational stories. We want to understand this sort of revolutionary war. And I think what we really have to kind of grasp is the idea of <coughs> a limited utility in destructive warfare and a more useful utility in a change towards lower measures of covert warfare. I think that's the future. Innovation in military diplomatic affairs is rarely revolutionary. Instead, it's evolutionary. And it's a process replete with unintended consequences and cascading effects. And the challenge is, is that we focus more on the covert actions or aspects of cybersecurity. There are many, many unintended effects. And the reality is, I'm often in rooms with American military people where I have to kind of raise my hand and say, you just kind of mentioned a war crime, and we probably shouldn't talk about that. Because the reality is, if you use cyber tools, there is no distinction between the attacker and the civilian. These things don't really, there's no distinction really. They bleed from one side <laughs> to the other. Even Stuxnet, an attack on an Iranian nuclear plant, underground in the middle of nowhere, disconnected from the internet, still affected the civilian population and still bled out. So that's a challenge, is that there are unintended consequences and possibly cascading effects that we have no grasp on what the intention or what the reality will be in the future. We need to avoid the megafauna approach to cybersecurity. Most cybersecurity talks will focus on one event. They'll focus on the 2016 uh, election, they'll focus on the Sony hack, they'll focus on Estonia, they'll focus on Stuxnet. We have a World War I 
vacation of cybersecurity, where we focus on these grand events, and we don't really look at the scope of the problem. And that's a huge challenge. To understand any challenge in war, any issue, we should look at the large recent history. And we do have a large recent history of cyber events. We have coded over 192 cyber events between rival states. So those are states with a long-standing history of antagonism. We will spread this out and do a lot more. We'll code states that are not rivals. We'll code non-state actors. But in the end, a recognized cyber disputes between recognized adversaries, we're probably not going to reach more than 500 over the last 20 or 30 years. That is not a lot of events. But that is enough to grasp an empirical history and empirical and understand an empirical picture of this domain. And when you do this, we have a different picture. The efficacy of cyber strategies is very, very limited. And these stories that we tell about cybersecurity are of limited utility if they only really apply to one case. We need as many cases as possible to achieve some sort of analytical leverage over our, our ideas. And that's a challenge for cybersecurity. As we focus on one case, we focus on this megafauna. And megafauna basically means like pandas. People study the big things, but not like the insects or butterflies or things that are more important for understanding, say, a climate change. We focus on the megafauna of cybersecurity. We miss the more useful information. And taking a larger picture of the scope of cyber actions, we have not seen them achieve knockout effects. We haven't seen them have dramatic change on the opposition. Yet this is still clearly a security problem, and there does remain a path to chaos and destruction <coughs> in this domain. But this path to chaos and destruction in this domain is very different in the way most people talk about it. Major powers now attempt to employ coercive cyber strategies to gain a position of advantage relative to their rivals. And on the other hand, small states and non-state actors are using cyber operations to punch above their weight, so to speak. So everyone's using cyber weapons. The major states are using them against other adversaries to maintain their power. Smaller states are using it to reach and harm larger states. These operations seek to achieve effects and compel the adversary to change their behavior. That's the reality of what compellence is. Coercion, well, I'll talk about coercion in a second. Um, however, few have uncovered how to measure and understand the effects and its coercive potential. Because that's really what is at the heart of cybersecurity. It's this promise of effect. The challenge is in the field of cybersecurity, there's very little analysis of what effect means and how we can understand effects and how we can understand change. Efficacy of cyber strategy is a critical question if you want to understand the future of cyber conflict and escalation. I don't know how you can do one without the other. I don't know how you can understand the utility of a weapon without understanding how effective a weapon is. And this goes to, you know, it's been a life-changing event for me to move from Glasgow to Cardiff to now work for the U.S. Marines. And when I work for the U.S. Marines, we talk about battle damage assessment quite a bit. They talk about how useful their weapons are and what effect they have. But when we talk about cybersecurity in the U.S. military, we don't talk about battle damage effect, uh, assessment. We don't talk about how useful these weapons were. It's more of a rush to use these new tools 
but justify their utility without evaluating their effectiveness. And that to me is a huge conundrum and a huge problem. And of course there's a huge promise of impact about the 17 that US national security strategy US national security strategy says cyber attacks offer adversaries low cost denial opportunities to, to, to seriously damage or disrupt critical infrastructure, cripple American businesses, weaken our federal networks, and attack the tools and devices that Americans use every day to communicate and conduct business. Cyber revolutionists and academia see lines of code as potent cyber weapons that create strategic instability. Brian Manzik says cyber warfare capabilities are leading to new uh, RMAs, revolution in military affairs, wherein cyber capabilities will play an increasing desirable role in military conflicts. <laughs> and one of the things that's often said about my career is um, I've been attacking strawmen. I guess maybe you can say that, but the reality is there are a lot of strawmen in the field of cybersecurity. There are a lot of people that say things without evidence and promise a lot of impact and promise a lot of change. And to me, as an empiricist, I want to understand, is that really true? Do we have any evidence for any of this? And for me, a lot of this falls in the range of coercion and compellence. And coercion is the use of threats, punishment, and escalation of costs during a crisis or conflict to alter foreign policy behavior. Cyber coercion then would be digitally exploiting the power to hurt and escalating the cost of taking certain actions. So in the digital domain, using, using these tools basically founded on microprocessors to escalate costs. But of course, there's a difference between deterrence and compellence. Uh, a threat intended to make an adversary do something versus a threat intended to keep an adversary from doing something. Everyone in cybersecurity focuses on the cyber deterrence, which by definition would mean deterring an adversary from doing something. I don't know how you witness someone not doing something. So it's tough to evaluate that with empirical evidence. But you can seek to evaluate with evidence a threat made to make an adversary change their behavior. That's what compellence is. So it's a big distinction a lot of people miss in showing. But for us, our focus is on compellence and cyber operations meant to shape how rivals will manage crises. An actor could compel an adversary to short of physical attack or also signal the risk of escalation. And that's a key aspect of cybersecurity. It's not all about massive war. It's not all about massive destruction. In fact, I think a lot of people watch Battlestar Galactica too much, or even potentially my favorite cybersecurity movie, War Games from 1982. There hasn't been a good one since then, really. Challenge me on that one. Um, but this focus on massive destruction and massive effect really belies what we think is going on here. And that's using methods short of physical attack to change behavior, to signal attention, the signal intentions, to alter the balance of information, and to also signal the risk of future escalation. And we're finding something strange about cybersecurity. Cyber actions actually limit escalation. The entirety of the discourse of cybersecurity tells you this is going to be an escalatory domain. We find very little evidence of that, and that's a huge challenge. That's a huge problem. We keep talking about opening the Pandora's box of cybersecurity, yet even when major powers are attacked by lesser adversaries, they refuse to attack back. And my future work, which we're doing now, 
is we're doing cross-cultural scenarios, which are basically experiments to look at decision-making of people who leverage cyber weapons. And we're finding even military, government, and of course every experiment has students, all of them refuse to escalate because they don't think it's really worth escalating to war over a digital effect or a digital attack. And that's a challenge for the entire discourse because the story in reality is much different than the story we craft in our minds. And this is something that bothers me about the field. A lot of unfulfilled promises, cyber campaigns are neither as revolutionary nor as novel as they seem when evaluated with evidence. That I offered the hypothesis, uh, or me and Ryan Maness in 2015, that adversaries on the digital front are restrained. They're constrained in their options, they're unlikely to engage in cyber conflict because of normative restrictions, because of the proliferation of cyber weapons, and the risk inherent within tested options. So to unpack that a bit, there are norms in cybersecurity. They have been created. They're not very strong, but they are there. Um, the other thing is cyber weapons are, I don't know how you want to put it, use it and lose it, so to speak. You use a cyber weapon, it gets out into the wild, anyone can use it and send it right back to you. That's an entirely different way of using a weapon than, say, a cruise missile. It's tough for us to use zero-day weapons because once you do, you can't use it again. You've lost that in your arsenal, and that's a challenge. And then finally, the military hates using untested weapons. They despise it because everything the military does is about success. It's about achieving success and not getting fired and making it to the next promotion board. Why then would the military offer to use weapons that they have little probability of knowing how useful they are because they have not used them in actual day-to-day -day combat situations? So we offered those theories before, but we've gone a step further now. In the next book, in the Cyber Strategy book, we are suggesting that cyber strategies produce limited course and effects and actually limit escalation. So the reason we are arguing that cyber strategies are unlikely and are rarely used is because they're not very effective. And that when they are used, they're actually used as signals to limit escalation and actually contain the potential for warfare. We find the utility of cyber coordination in the form of political warfare optimized for 21st century lies and its form as an ambiguous signal. It's a plausible, deniable signal. You do it, you send it out there, but you're not really attached to it. You could deny that you ever did it. Putin had the best quote when he said, I, I don't think we hacked the 2016 election, but we have hackers, and sometimes they wake up and they're very patriotic and they decide, hey, let's defend Russia, let's attack America. He literally said that. It's basically, you know, slightly word for word. <laughs> That's the idea. <coughs> There's no assurance that you actually did these things because it's tough to pinpoint the chain of command and who is actually launching these operations. But also never underestimate the stupidity of the people launching these operations. It was recently found that, that um, Guccifer, the one passing information to WikiLeaks, his Twitter account was logged into from the GRU in St. Petersburg. So they had like, you know, 180 logins and they found that one where he made that one mistake. 
And there's always that one mistake. There's always that behavior. There's always that thing that a hacker does that gives up who they are. It's tough to really hide them because they are human beings. Now, I'm not talking about AI and cybersecurity. That's a whole other thing. I don't really know how to handle that just yet. But as we have humans involved, humans often make mistakes and can, we can figure out where a lot of these attacks come from. But because we know where the attack comes from, it doesn't mean we know who ordered that attack. We don't know if President Xi is saying it. We don't know if President Trump is saying it. We don't know if Putin is ordering these things. But we, knew there, we do know who does them. So that way of sort of plausible deniability is a form of ambiguous signaling. And in political science and in international relations, we have largely failed to understand both ambiguous signals and covert actions. And covert attempts to demonstrate resolve that rely on seeking costs and rising the risk to shape rival behavior. That's really what cybersecurity is. It's covert attempts to raise costs to shape the behavior of the opposition. They're not massive, massively destructive. There are more ways of just kind of signaling that this isn't what we like, let's do something different. Or in some ways, they're harassment episodes. So we divide cybersecurity events into three buckets. Uh, this is just state to state right now, so we're leaving out crime. But disruption is harassment, probing, signaling intent. Then you have espionage to manipulate data and perceptions to alter the balance of information to steal data. And then you have degrade operations, which are covert efforts to deny and sabotage. Those are the most destructive types of operations. Over the last, you know, since 2000, this is the picture of cybersecurity. 192 incidents in our data set. I could talk about the data set all day long, but I'm not really going to dive into that now. Uh, but you get the picture that there are rising cyber conflict events. But these events are predominantly dominated by harassment and espionage. That's what these two are. The degrade options, the serious destruction options, are very, very minimal throughout history. We don't see very many of them. And these are the megafauna events. So the thing is, we talk a lot about these grand cyber events, but in proportion, they're very, very rare. And these are just significant attacks. You know, I can't capture every DDoS, every attempt to change someone's password, every sort of probe, every intrusion. That's beyond our capabilities. We're talking about significant government efforts to harass, to use espionage, or to degrade. And that's the picture we get. Our major finding is that cyber coercion produces only limited concessions. Of 192 episodes of cyber coercion between rival, only 5.2% achieved compelling success. Which seems bad. That's pretty good for coercion. But that just tells you how bad coercion is as a tool. Coercion rarely ever works. The history of coercion is a very tough story of telling we, do, we will threaten this, you will do this. It very rarely happens. Think of it like a child. You tell a child what to do, they're more likely to do the complete opposite. Coercion is tough to achieve. Cyber degradations are more likely to achieve concessions than other forms of cyber strategy. So the more serious events, obviously, are more likely to change behavior. The problem with that finding is all the cyber data, majority, or all the cyber events that produce uh, concessions 
all involve the United States. I'm not being biased here, that's just what we know. Um, and the problem is, if your findings are dominated by one state, uh, your findings are probably biased by that one state. So it's either an outlier, um, America's super effective, everyone's super weak, I don't know. You can tell whatever story you want to tell, but as a social scientist, to me, this is a challenge because all my events are driven by one state. That doesn't make it for a generalizable finding. And even if you unpack these, the story isn't very good. The United States and Russia are in a continuous cycle of China attacking, China stealing, America countering with counter-espionage, China stopping, and then starting right back up again in a year later. So there's just this continuous cycle that always happens. And we should expect that to happen. That's just how international politics works. The reality is, until we solve the foundations of disputes between, say, Israel and Iran, U.S. and Russia, U.S. and China, we're never going to solve these cyber disputes. And these cyber disputes are going to continue. But are they going to be these massive, revolutionary, destructive events? We don't really think so. Neither past cyber incidents nor states' latent cyber power are empirically associated with concessions. Military and economic power appear to be better explanatory factors. So we did logic regression analysis, advanced statistics. We controlled for all other factors, including regime type, military um, capabilities, military power, economic power. We had a measure of cyber capacity based on um, superconductors, based on engineering degrees, based on cybersecurity publications. And the only thing that seemed to matter is kind of basically if you use cyber events on the in the past, you're more likely to use them again. Not necessarily a confounding finding. That's what you would expect to find. But the reality is nothing else really seems to matter that much besides economic power. So is it cyber that's making these states more effective when they use these tools? Likely not. And even when cyber exchanges between rivals escalate, they remain limited in scope outside ongoing military conflict. So when we see escalation on a 10-point scale, it often is from a 2 to a 3, not from a 2 to a 6, not even from a 2 to a 4. I think we have one case, I should remember which one it is, where they jump two levels on a severity index. Other deeper problem is we have very little grasp on what escalation means. If I read one more application of Herman Kahn's escalation ladder to cybersecurity, I'm going to cut my eyes out. We need new ideas and new thoughts about how escalation works because we are focused so much on the era of nuclear power, we haven't been able to leverage this era of nuclear power on the future of warfare as it is now, which is AI, drones, and cyber, and special operations. The two things don't match. I just declined to review a book on nuclear and cyber war because I just said, I'm not going to be fair to it because it's just a dumb idea. We cannot connect these two things. They're disconnected quite a bit. Country-specific results. So we have case studies. Of course, you've got to have case studies. Oh, and uh, I did this in front of a Moscow State University professor at ISA. She was very upset I used the mirror to represent Russia. I wouldn't be upset if you used a bald eagle that's like you know, losing its hair or something to for America. But, uh, Russia's a diminished power. She's probably more upset with that. But, uh, has corrupt political system, a flailing economy, and limitations on military expending. 
its cyber strategy is of disruption and disinformation as a cheaper way to seek out its political goals. It can't do much more than that. There's an overblown view of impact. The election act of 2016 was neither cheap nor very effective, but it was noticeable. And that's the challenge for cybersecurity because there's so much attention on these events. You gain notice, but it doesn't mean it changed anything. And I really hate to parrot Trump's line about this, but I said it first. The monkey cage many a time. We went out and looked at all the polling organizations in America. And we asked them, do you have any polls that show WikiLeaks having an impact on voters? You've never seen one. We can't find one. It's not to say there's not an impact. There likely is because the, event, the, the race was so close. And uh, in an event so close, any little thing can have an impact. But as for a major impact and changing how America thought about Hillary Clinton, no, it really just kind of reinforced views of people who already hated her. That's really all it did. It didn't really change much. We cannot find evidence for that. So it's not very effective. But it doesn't mean it wasn't insidious. It doesn't mean it wasn't challenging. It doesn't mean it's something we don't need to worry about. I'm not saying cyber is not an issue. I'm saying the frame we talk about cybersecurity is completely and utterly off. We talk about it in a frame of warfare, and we really need to talk about it in a frame of espionage and covert operations, and we need to think about it more from the domain of psychological interpretations and perspectives. We need to look at it from the, term, the view of uh, blowback or behavioral psychology. But instead, we focus so much on this nuclear, grand strategic perspective, Russia is using Ukraine as a testing ground. No, it's not. It's just trying to win a war, and Ukraine is not doing very well at it. It's been stuck in the airport in Donetsk for two and a half years now. Cyber is not helping Russia win anything at all. It only does it because it can't do much else. China, rising great power that's attempting to bridge the gap economically, military, technologically with the status quo competitor. And the challenge was, in the 80s and 70s, China went out and sought to steal its way to adaptation and innovation. And they continued that with cybersecurity. The problem is you cannot steal your way to innovation and adaptation. It doesn't work. My favorite story of that is all the Japanese distilleries that bought Scottish whiskeys. I used to live out in Glasgow. Um, they, can't, they couldn't move it. They couldn't take a distillery, move it to Japan, and reproduce the same thing. There's something about techniques, knowledge, about developing the technology yourself. And I think China has realized that. But the early history of China and cybersecurity was very much about stealing information. The problem was is that you would actually see China steal information two or three times. And that would tell you there's a lack of coordination. One group would steal something, then another group would steal the same thing a few months later. They're not talking to each other. They're not digesting that information because there's just so much of it. It's tough to really do much with all this volumes and volumes of information. <laughs> China's new strategy, I believe, is more focused on protecting their interests in the South China Sea and preventing internal revolt and, and, and kind of becoming the leader in what we call digital sovereignty and ensuring that each state can control their digital territory. And that's really China's focus now. So they become less dangerous in 
our eyes if we have a proper perspective on what they've been doing. But all states steal. America does the same thing. Russia does the same thing. We shouldn't blame one state for using espionage over another. This is the second oldest profession in the world. The question is, how effective is it? And I don't think we have a good grasp in terms of espionage on does it really work? Do you really get anything out of all this analysis, out of all this information? You know, now it's become a lot of people who work for the CIA are just basically reading newspapers at this point. That's really what's what espionage has become in many ways. America has technological superiority over Russia and China. And what America basically does is we've extended this precision strike complex to cybersecurity. And the precision strike complex is this view in America of targeted operations. Um, probably the worst story I've ever heard about Trump is when they showed him that they have these new munitions that limit civilian casualties and how they waited for a terrorist to leave a house and that's when they used a, uh, a Stinger missile on. Uh, and then Trump said, well, why would we do that? We do that because that's what America does in the military. That's their doctrine to limit collateral damage, to be precise. We use, America uses cyber capability sparingly because we don't want to give access to our superior um, capabilities in cyberspace. And because we need to have precise strikes. I mentioned before there's a lot of collateral damage in cybersecurity. We want to limit that. America, you know, we talk about having a cyber operative at every regiment. The challenge for that would be though, we would also need to have a legal analyst at every regiment. You cannot disconnect cybersecurity in America from legal analysis. There's so many rules about what you can do and what you can do to other people's computers. It's such a real tense weapon. And to use it effectively, we would need to go no holds bar. And that's something that maybe John Bolton might be willing to do. But as of the last 20, 30 years, America has been very careful about the use of cyber capabilities for harm, for destruction. It doesn't mean America doesn't use it for spying, for espionage and intrusion. Of course they do. That's just what the CIA does. They need to do something. Everyone has a job. Escalation in cyberspace. There is no escalation ladder. You know, that's the Herman Kahn's escalation ladder, which has 42 steps or 44 steps. There's nothing like that. It's just tit for tat. Or you can view it as a cycle. Espionage does not lead to escalation. It just leads to, you get caught for escalation, then you, you bar a few people. Um, you make a lot of people persona non grata. Uh, the other favorite thing that happened recently is we kicked um, the Soviets out of the, the Seattle annex that they had because they were trying to recruit Microsoft people. Um, they called the cops on us uh, because all the Americans went in with listening devices and you know tried to sweep the building. So um, they were a bit upset about that. But that's what law enforcement's for. There is a danger that the UAE recently used uh, covert cyber capabilities to suggest that Qatar had said things that they did not say. So that's really, to me, the problem, the fear. Changing data, manipulating data. I forget what they call it now, but they have a new term for it where you can just like change someone's face, do video analysis. That's the real fear. But that's not cyber war. 
That's just espionage, covert operations, propaganda. It's nothing really different. And the other thing is that there's a key importance of political attribution. That we make a lot about the attribution problem, but if these events happen in the context of a rivalry, or let's say a company called Sony gets hacked because they're making a movie about the North Korean dictator, they were probably hacked by North Korea. It doesn't take a lot of analysis to figure that out. But a lot of people reject that idea. The cybersecurity and the digital people believe they are above politics. They believe that politics isn't part of their process. Robert Lee, a very prominent cyber, um, cyber analyst who formerly the NS, uh, NSC, NSA, was in a big New York Times article the other day talking about how his company, Dragos, doesn't do attribution because it's a political issue. And that's right. But the problem is, if you're going to talk about who the attacker is and what their motives are, you should probably know who the attacker is. And limiting or dividing the buckets between digital technology and politics is not going to work going forward. These two things need to be combined together. And that's a whole education challenge. That's a whole infrastructure challenge. That's a whole challenge for the whole government approach to cybersecurity. We also are seeing the newer attacks too between government on private industry. And that's another issue because what's the proper response? You know, America, the NSA, NSC knew that Sony was going to be hacked. They knew Sony was being hacked. We were watching Sony hacked. Well, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to intervene. <coughs> if you intervene, you blow your sources. You intervene, you're going too far in protecting a civilian organization that might not want that protection, they may not ask for that protection. That's a whole other source of challenges. And it's not about this public-private partnership people could keep talking about. There is no partnership. There is no exchange of information. There is no collaboration. That needs to happen more, and that's going to be the real challenge. To me, cybersecurity is more about a human security issue. How do we protect private individuals who are more likely to be harmed than government? And we have no answer to that. We don't know who you're going to call. You know, we have this issue where Trump keeps saying, why didn't the DNC turn over their server? They did to cybersecurity firms who are made up of people who are former NSC people who left because they make more money in private industry. That's just the way the world works now. That now private industry is probably much more capable than a lot of these uh, technological espionage units. And that's a whole big challenge. My friend wrote a great article called Blue Hairs. It was in War on the Rocks, uh, Jackie Snyder. But what she's talking about is the people who do technology at a high rate, who are very good at it, don't fit in government. They don't fit in government structures. I've heard many a general talk about when I, uh, when I look for a cyber operative, they must know this system, that system, and that system, and they must know this code. And that doesn't work. We all know how we train students. We know how we develop talent. Some of the best talent we develop comes from non-traditional sources, and we find it in non-traditional ways. Yet a lot of things we do in cybersecurity is about replicating traditional ways of learning and methodologies. That doesn't really mean that we're going to lead to some sort of revolution. So the challenge, 
Unpacking um, Shiju logic of cyber conflict is a new means of coercing political opponents. Demands we understand the realities and the limits of innovation. We talk too much about the possibilities, but not enough about the limits. <coughs> I'm a pessimistic person. American, I'm a Latino from LA. I do things differently. I've always never trusted government. I grew up in Rampart Division era, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the cops planting things on American civilians. I've always been skeptical of my life. And I think it's important here that the story we're being told doesn't match with evidence. That there are limits to innovation. There's a woeful need to understand the process of decision making and psychological reactions. So we need to understand more how units make decisions as a collective group, but also the psychological aspects of cybersecurity. Because it is changing our brains. It's changing how we behave. It's changing our dependencies. It's becoming an addiction of sorts. We can't frame this as a war. This is more of a challenge in the elements of basic human behavior. We haven't done enough psychological work. Michael Gross and his team is doing good work, um, but I think others need to do more. And we're doing more work on decision making in war games. Well, we urge caution. States seeking to leverage cyber actions to achieve decisive effects are likely to be disappointed. Digital effects have been slow to emerge and tend to amplify rather than replace traditional elements of power. It's just making the strong states stronger. That's all it's really doing. The story is not much different. The future? One, we have a very clear problem with threat inflation. If we inflate the threat too much and talk too much about the danger of a massive cyber war from Russia or China, we're not going to prepare our defenses for the future. We need to do the basic things first. We need to understand how we're going to control access, how we're going to maintain privacy, how we're not going to let Facebook give everyone's data away. These are our current challenges. Yet the story we tell is much grander and much different than the reality of the fight on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not a domain of novelty or escalation or conflict spirals. Cybersecurity is a domain of covert operations. And in international relations, we have very few people who have done good work on covert operations. Bob Jervis, Austin Carson, Karen Milo, <coughs> but there's very, very few of them. And I think that's where the future of international relations needs to go. If we're going to understand a revolution in international relations, it's more of a revolution towards covert operations away from these more escalatory, dramatic conflict events. There are a lot of unappreciated strategic risks in cybersecurity. <coughs> Blowback, which means a weapon could be used right back at you. Uh, they're one-shot weapons that can be spread. They're untested. They're risky. We put a lot of promise in cybersecurity. When you, if you actually talk to a lot of cyber operators, they're very dubious of their own weapons because they know the limitations of their weapons. The difference between the story the news media tells and the story cyber operators tell is drastically different, and that's a problem. I think we need empirical research to back that up. Whatever you want to call empirical research, it doesn't really matter, but case studies, data work, psychological experiments, scenarios. But I want things grounded in the real world. There is too much done in cybersecurity on flights of imagination and the hypothetical. All hypotheticals must be grounded in what is plausible. 
And you can't do research on things that are not exactly plausible. A lot of the research people seem to do seems to be based on this grand idea of a cyber war you know, made up from Battlestar Galactica or say the Ghost Fleet book. Ghost Fleet book. And that's just not what's happening. We have to understand the process of modern political warfare. When states like Russia have a view of status that isn't being met in reality, they have a very limited ability to change that perception of their status. And cyber is one way of doing it. Cyber is one way of trying to achieve notice. But it's not a way of achieving impact. And the other thing, too, is we have seen covert operations. We've seen reflexive measures by Russia during the Cold War. You know, they, they said America spread HIV, things like that. We never threatened to bomb them for this. But we do now all the time because of the 2016 election. And that's a problem. And then I think at the end, the true challenge, I think, in the future is more of a personal thing. It's a human security issue. It's about cyber repression. You are talking earlier about the idea of cyber being a liberation technology. It's actually the complete opposite of that for many countries. It's actually a way of repressing and controlling your population. That's where cybersecurity is very effective. It's not effective in state to state, it's state to individual. So the framework we use to evaluate cybersecurity is entirely wrong. I shouldn't have written that book, but that's what people wanted me to do. There's a whole other project that I think is more important, and that's trying to understand how states are using these actions to control their population. And we need to document that, we need to seek to name and shame it. We need to involve the UN and other civil society organizations. But we're so focused on this idea of massive cyber war, I think we've really missed what is going on. It's not a revolution of warfare between states. It's a revolution of warfare between state versus individual. And that's where I think the future needs to go and where we need to investigate in the future. So thank you. I'm open to questions.